0: You're listening to Renew Economy's weekly podcast, an update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economy's editor, Charles Parkinson, leading energy market analyst, David Leach. Well, welcome to the Renew Economy weekly podcast, where we review the great incidents of the week in the the energy markets and the climate markets, the climate world. Um, I'm sitting here in my office uh, my name's Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and sitting in his office in the city miles away is David leach. How are you David?
1: ah uh, very well thanks Charles and hello to all of our listeners
0: indeed hello um look there's a lot, lot to talk about as there always is um, I think we're going to talk about the continuing competition between wind and solar and um and coal and this idea of clean coal. I think we're going to talk about the market rules. I think we're talking about the looming energy crisis and some controversy over battery storage. But look, I'm going to start off with um, an ANU report which came out on Monday and its main theme was that um, wind and solar um, were already sort of cost competitive with new coal plants and would um, become increasingly so. The point was made that um, wind and solar, if they're the prices now are probably below what we've seen in the um, wholesale electricity markets um, this year in just about every state. Um, certainly, much cheaper than coal, particularly if you take out the um, if if you don't include the, if you do include the subsidy for um, for pollution, which is not included. And the point made by the ANU was that um, the electricity grid can be powered by wind and solar 100% with the backup of pumped hydro and it should be pointed out that pumped hydro was pretty much the only backup that they looked at and um, acknowledged that other technologies such as battery storage and solar thermal were also available. But David, um, yet another argument and another case as we saw with CSIRO last, week, last year Sorry, that um, wind and solar prove cost competitive technologies to new coal. How much of this evidence will it take before it seems to sink in?
1: Uh, Well, I think it's going to take any amount of evidence uh, because it's only theoretical studies. I could equally point to the University of New South Wales study that used actually half-hourly weather data to show that you could do most of the job of 100% renewables with uh, wind, and they use biomass for their balancing thing. But in the end, Giles, that's not going to be of any help to anyone right now uh, because at the end it's come down to a debate about what we're going to do over the next two or three years uh, as much as whether we can get to 100% renewable eventually, I think the first challenge is to get to 50%. And the focus is on being able to demonstrate to everyone that that is going to give us energy security and safety and a reasonable electricity price.
0: Well, indeed, in fact, the first the first challenge might be getting to 23.5%, which is the uh, 2020 target. And um, I guess there's been a lot of discussion about whether we're going to get there. Um, the prevailing wisdom was that, no, it was, a, um, it was too much too soon. But we're seeing a lot of solar plant announcements, and we've seen a couple of wind power announcements this week. Energy Australia signing up and um, Gera, I think it's called, a 120-megawatt plant that Infigen intends to build. Um, it's rather looking like we can get there because um, wind projects, uh, wind and solar projects, appearing everywhere.
1: So I count about uh, sixteen hundred megawatts of wind that's def- reached FID and definitely going ahead. FID uh, is all-
0: what financial closure, isn't it?
1: Uh, financial final investment decision. Okay. Uh, when someone agreed to put the dollars down, that's about the only time I really start counting it. Uh, and then, that, so as I said, about sixteen hundred megawatts there and about uh, 1150 megawatts of utility PV, and somewhere, of course, between 600 and some bigger number of rooftop PV. So if you add all of that up, you've got uh, 2.6 gigawatts, uh, maybe even three gigawatts coming up uh, over the next couple of years. And Malcolm Turnbull and every Australian is gonna be very grateful for that, because without that, we would have had a real risk of uh, blackouts. Uh, I think people are still greatly underestimating uh, how much stress there's going to be on the electricity system uh, next summer.
0: Indeed. In fact, I've just been looking through those reports from South Australia and also New South Wales, and um, one story I haven't written yet, but I was going to write sometime, was that how solar power um, perfectly followed its bell curve and was probably the most reliable and dependable um, uh, energy source that we had during that crisis.
1: Yeah, well, I mean... You know, renewable energy, uh, pretty much, solar does perform as expected when when the sun's out. Uh, and I think this is one of the things that's become apparent. But I don't want to make too much of it. But the fact is that coal and gas is not all that reliable necessarily, exactly when you want it to be either. I, I think these are all like trivial, in a sense. Getting bogged down on the on the on, on the details of which one worked on a particular day misses the bigger picture of just trying to plan the future and move steadily towards a goal. Um, You know, and it's equally true to say that whilst wind and solar are cheaper on their own, we do have to also allow for the costs of integration, uh, the costs of making them dispatchable, the costs of transmission. Uh, And the other criticism I keep coming back to is all these studies only look at the utility side of the market. They don't look at the contribution of distributed uh, generation, Mm. uh, rooftop solar and batteries. and, And I still think Uh, We're short of the the kind of vision that Australia needs, that South Australia needs, just to get through the next couple of years.
0: Well, that's right. Yeah, I should probably point out that the ANU study did include the integration costs of battery storage and backup. But anyway, look, I get your point. We do get bogged down on these little things, but I guess that's the problem with this debate. We get bogged down. Everyone's just sort of picking up one thing and... And trying to make a case um, either for or against renewable energy. But look, let's move along. Um, there's been a lot more discussion now about one very key component, and this has got all to do with grid stability. About um, this so-called five-minute rule and thirty-minute rule, and we're hearing about battery storage. Um, we've heard some interesting um, evidence in the um, in the in the Senate inquiry over the last um, couple of weeks about battery storage developers, including AES, which is a very big international company, being surprised by the naivety and the, um, uh, as they described it, of the um, regulators and the ministers in Australia about, they didn't seem to understand that battery storage had been deployed elsewhere in the world. It had been deployed at scale, and it was was cost competitive. What did you make of that? And, and, and what's your take on this 30 minute and five minute rule that they're discussing at the moment?
1: Well, Charles, you you recall, record- I mean, the most interesting podcast I was associated with last year, outside of the ones that you and I do, uh, is, was the one with uh, Merrick Kubik, who looks after AES's battery uh, storage division in Europe. And I'd urge anyone who hasn't listened to that podcast, who has an interest in the topic to go away and listen to it. He does a comparison of Ireland and South Australia. He talks about utility scale batteries. Uh, he's an absolute expert on the topic and talks about it in a user friendly way. And there's a lot of information to be learnt there. Um, Look, this is where I think you can criticise some of the state governments as well as the federal government. Uh, South Australia has been sitting on its hands uh, for well over a year now, uh, talking about what it's going to do in the way of tenders and talking about all these things it might do. And actually, what does it do? Uh, SFA, quite frankly. Now, that's pretty much like what the uh, um, um, uh, AEMC is doing with the 30-and-5-minute rule, where they've had endless inquiries and ended up doing nothing. Uh, so that anyone, uh, who you know, the, 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 the broader generation market, as we discussed this week, is becoming more vertically integrated. There are fewer and fewer players, players and, and they're still trying to hold the system to their own best advantage. And the five-minute... Go on,
0: sorry Charles. No, no, that's okay. Look, I'll just actually point out the five minute rule and the 30 minute rule. So just, just for the people not familiar with this, at the moment we have five minute dispatch, which means people are asked to sort of dispatch a certain amount of electricity from their generator or capacity um, every five minutes and a price is set, but the actual settlement doesn't happen until every 30 minutes. And the argument of many people is that this actually distorts the price. It sort of allows for gaming, for people to set the price, suddenly withdraw the capacity in one five minute period push the price up and then all rush back in for the remainder of that 30 minute period. And the people pushing battery storage argue very strongly that if you have a five minute period, this allows for this very fast response battery storage to come into the market and keep prices down and be a quicker responder. Of course, the incumbents, as you mentioned, are sort of um, holding fast on this and threatening um, that that'll be the end of their contribution um, if it goes ahead. So um, yeah, sorry, David, I just wanted to explain that. Um, You go on.
1: (laughs) No, 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 Giles, that's, uh, uh, that's a better explanation than I could have offered. And of course, if you get a really high price, like $14,000 in one five minutes and you, a- you average it out over the 30 minutes, you end up with a high price over the 30 minute period, that, who pays for that in the end? It's you, the consumer. Now, the the point here is that the five-minute rule is an opportunity to get fast frequency control. All this controversy that we're seeing, and it is a very fair debate about when you get to a high percentage of renewables of 40 or 50%, you start to run into frequency control and inertia issues. That that is a very fair point. And thermal generation can supply those, but actually, so can new technologies. We're starting to see how wind can supply synthetic inertia. Uh, We're in early days yet there yet but the, but the outlook is quite promising and but you won't even need inertia if you had enough batteries because batteries can can have a three second response a two second response a one second response uh, and, and, and,
0: and a millisecond response as well yes Well look this stuff is going to be needed because I'm just going to move this conversation along at the moment because we've got climate reports coming up this week and next week which point out that not only have we had a record hot summer in Australia Um, in this past summer with all the heat waves. The we've got another El Nino coming our way in 2017. Next summer could be hotter. Um, We may have hotter southerners coming down the track and we've got Hazelwood coming out of the system and David, you're a bit worried that things are going to get quite tense and a little bit prickly on the markets this coming summer.
1: Yeah, that's right, Giles. I I am worried and I, I just want to point out that, you know, this week we saw George Christensen, that big voice from the north, Uh, calling for a coal-fired power station in North Queensland, right? Why does he want that? Because it might help him get re-elected. Could it possibly make a useful contribution to solving Australia's electricity problems in the next five or six years? No. Is there any logic about it? It's just blatant self-interest. Nothing to do with helping to make a better electricity system for Australia. And that's the sort of thing that makes me grumpy. Whichever side of politics you're on, we're looking for good long-term solutions here. Now coming back to the potential, why do we need a solution? Because the system is in crisis. This year, we virtually had blackouts in New South Wales on a hot day. As you point out, uh, we're likely to get more hot days in the future. That's completely locked in. Quite a lot more more hot days if we look on 10 years on average in summer. Uh, Hazelwood is closing, has closed yesterday, I suppose. Um, uh, taking 20% of Victoria's electricity supply away. And then Daniel Andrews, in, in, in an act of blatant self-interest to support his, his voters, has ended up keeping the Portland aluminium smelter going, which basically it's only running at a third of capacity now. So it will add about another 6% to Victorian demand. So you've got a 20% reduction in Victorian supply, a 6% increase in demand relative to when we nearly had a backout. out. Uh, you know, it's, it's a problem.
0: I wonder what we can do about it. I think um, probably a lot more demand management, a lot more appealing to customers to sort of ease off the throttle, and um, and hopefully more renewables to possibly fill in those gaps, um, and and more solar. There are a few solar plants coming in Victoria, but um, it's going to be an interesting management problem for the um, for the authorities, and it's just going to be another big political football.
1: Well, Giles, this is the point about the renewables that are coming on. One, I don't think there will be enough of them there by this time next summer. If we look two years out, perhaps that would be different. But secondly, the, the renewables are co- still coming on under the federal renewable target, which basically still doesn't pay any attention to where they're being built or the dispatchability of them. So, you know, at 6pm at night uh, in, in, in on the middle of February, it's quite a good chance that there won't be much solar and there may not be that much wind. So we still need to do, think about it harder. We need to think about the transmission leaks, which can't be built in a hurry. But what I would urge every business, every household consumer, to one, be thinking of the national interest when it gets there, that's a long time away yet, but two, what can you do yourself to improve your energy efficiency in the house, uh, uh, to maybe put in some battery storage, to improve the energy efficiency of your business well that's
0: in denmark sorry no sorry yeah um well that's an interesting one because battery storage and we've got this controversy arising now because the standard various standards groups around australia um um threatening to put in or it looks like they're going to be recommending that battery storage not be um, installed inside the home or a garage Um, and it may not just apply to lithium-ion storage it might actually apply to other storage now this is being branded as a bit of overreach um, by Australia because um, storage has been installed internationally in America and, and Germany, about 30,000 installations each for p- people like BYD and LG Chem and um, and Sonnen Battery. Um, it just seems like a, 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 a piece of gross overreach, so...
1: Charles, it's a piece of there. total bullshit. Let's not call it overreach, it's total bullshit. Look at all these uh, uh, LPG cylinders that people have got floating around their houses, you know, which have got to be at least as dangerous as a battery. If you'd been at last year's uh, uh, storage conference, which was a very good conference, you'd have heard them speak about the electric single bar radiators and the number of fires they cause and no one ever says they're outlawed. This whole thing is just total bullshit.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you, David. Look, Another couple of interesting things though, I mean, despite this happening, we've actually had a lot of um, people um, introducing battery storage and um, other smart um, smart technology coming into the market. I think on Monday we've got Jelly, a, that's a US um, smart controller company, they're setting up shop in Australia. In the last couple of weeks we've had BYD, we've had solid batteries new offering, um, we've had LG Chem up there, Auntie, and then um, and, and Tesla next week are actually gonna be finally releasing or um, unveiling their Powerwall 2. And I think that's gonna be of great interest. One, not just because of the final pricing of it, but also because of their strategy for selling. There's talk about going direct to market as they have with um, vehicles and possibly bypassing some distributors and wholesalers. And the other issue is um, is going to be um, the actual um, specs um, and, and, and the capacity of of, of, that better, of the battery thing. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out.
1: Well, you know, I do think more broadly, the channel to market uh, uh, discussion is one worth having. In, in terms of uh, rooftop PV, Australia is, is the most efficient uh, country in the world. And we've got lots and lots of suppliers and they brought the cost of, of that down way below Uh, um, uh, what it is in the USA, but in terms of the markup that goes on in the distribution chain for something like batteries, uh, I I question whether, you know, the installation and markup is is, is really appropriate in a model in the market like Australia. I guess it will work its way out and um, the trouble is, it's all very well saying direct to the consumer. <laughs> I'd like to see you installing your Tesla Powerwall too when it turns up, Giles.
0: I think it'd probably been direct to the installer, actually, but um, no, I'm not going to be doing that. Um, one final point there, because you just mentioned about solar, rooftop solar. It was interesting this week, Victoria came out with a new solar tariff. It's actually double its previous uh, feed-in tariff and double any other recommended rate around, around, around Australia. And there's two interesting things about it. One, it represents an increase in wholesale prices in Victoria and we're probably going to see that in, in other states too. The second thing is that they're the first to actually bring in an additional component to the value of that tariff. And uh, implicitly or explicitly in this in this case, it was actually the social cost of carbon, which the pricing authority was actually included. And so that 2.5 cents a kilowatt hour is actually the social cost of carbon. They're still trying to get their mind around the environmental cost and um, they haven't been very decisive on the transmission and the distribution network benefits, but that's an interesting step forward. And at 11 0.3 cents a kilowatt hour which is what they're offering that's pretty much the levelized cost of electricity if you buy solar panels and you install them on the roof pretty much that's actually costing you 11 point about around about 10 11 12 cents a kilowatt hour so if you're actually getting that much um, sending it back into the grid that seems like a fair deal doesn't it David
1: well it does of course you'll still be way better off using the solar behind the meter uh, where you'll be avoiding a cost of about 24 or 25 cents a kilowatt hour So that that would clearly be the first. And it's a shame in a sense that it's happening in Victoria, which is one of the least sunny states, at least if we're talking after lunch. Before lunch, it might be a different story. Uh, uh, but it is a fantastic move. And in general, uh, the Portless smelter thing aside, Victoria really has to be congratulated for all the moves they're making on renewable energy. I, you know, they're setting a great example there. And uh, I suppose Simon Corbell uh, is there assisting as well. I, I'd like to see them have a te- an even bigger tender out for batteries. I know they've got a small one, but, um, you know, it's the most progressive state in Australia at the moment in the way they're approaching these things.
0: Indeed, and in, in some late breaking news, actually, they did actually announce later on this afternoon um, um, the um, the uh, another tender for large scale solar in. Um, in Victoria and also some important energy efficiency schemes look I'm going to wrap it up there um, David i thought sure we're going to have a lot to talk about next week um, one we've got the unveiling of Tesla 2 we've got the opening of the jelly offices importantly we have the completion of all the submissions coming into the Finkel review so I'm sure we're going to get some of those things coming out in the media as well both for and against progress <laughs> um, and what have you and of course um, there'll be another week in parliament and more hot days and, um, and more controversy no doubt
1: I'd like to point out to one other thing that's going to be very important to the prices that customers actually pay here in New South Wales. And that sometime by the end of March, according to uh, what uh, Spark Infrastructure announced, we're going to see the decision from the uh, federal court about the New South Wales distribution prices. And that's a really big uh, that will affect electricity prices in New South Wales. Ten percent. Uh, and it's actually going to be an absolute case law study for how prices are going to be determined in all the other states going forward. So there's a lot riding on that, and it's something I'll be keeping an eye on. Good
0: stuff. Okay, well, thank you very much, David, and um, thank you very much for listening to this podcast, and uh, we'll be sure to be back next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.